hello and welcome to episode 105 of the 1099 for the week of August 14th, 2017. I am your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a co-founder for Indie Studios Lambeer, a speaker and world traveler, and someone who I think is somehow still under the age of 30, Rami Ismail. Rami, how are you doing today? <laughs> I am under the age of 30. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm good. It's a beautiful day out here in the Netherlands, so spend most of my day looking at an old fortress. Uh, but, oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's... One of those days where we had a bunch of visitors from abroad and uh, we wanted to show them something cool in the Netherlands. And not too far from where I live, there's this this old uh, bastion um, mm. that that is still there. Uh, so we went there to have some food. Uh, it's just gorgeous. I've, I haven't seen this good, this good, like the weather this, this beautiful actually in quite a while. Yeah, I'm I'm jealous. I, I live in Florida, but it's just like constantly 90 and muggy and gross. Ooh. And like, yeah, it's, it's not... It's not great. It's not the best. I don't have any really amazing fortresses by here anyway. We do have St. Augustine, which is a super old town, and there's like a lot of the old stuff in there. But most of the time when people come to Jacksonville, you're like, I don't know, there's like a pho place pretty close. And I don't know, you can go to a Publix if you want. Like they have pretty good cookies. Like it's not the most appealing part the, of the country. The Netherlands is strange because it's like it's if you want to drive from north to south or east to west it's about a two hour drive so anything in this country is close. Like people often ask me like how far from Amsterdam do you live and I always say like within 20 minutes. Like the honest <laughs> truth is most things in the Netherlands are like 20 minutes away from each other so it's um there's a lot of like fun little history things that are here because this country has existed for quite a while um, and so all of them are within 20 minutes. I mean, that's it's crazy how small that is compared to like just in uh, when I first moved to Florida, everyone's like, oh, you're going to visit Miami. I'm like, I'm in Jacksonville. That's like six hours away. <laughs> like the state itself from like from like north to south is like six or seven hours. So it's yeah, yeah it's ridiculous how big. I, I remember one one uh, friend of mine told my fiance, my fiance was born in the United States and, and mm. he told her like, oh, I, I live in the middle of nowhere in the Netherlands. And she kind of had to go like, oh, wow, how far is that? And he's like, well, by bike, it's like 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> she's like the nearest airport to where i grew up was four and a half hour drive and i'm like that's outside of our country that's not even the netherlands anymore it's so strange especially when people um i'm friends with kevin van ord who recently uh moved to like larian studios and he's talking about being in belgium and like how he's like telling me how close everything is together and like i can't wrap my mind around it i'm like i'm like so far from just like ohio and you're right next to like france and all these things like it's it's crazy how close things are i think that when you live in the u.s you don't really realize yeah it's been it's been fun to be honest because when when i started um Flambeer, it was really useful to have different countries nearby like the netherlands doesn't speak english so one yeah. of the big challenges we had when we were just starting out was we you know the the biggest press in the netherlands would reach how many people do we have? Like 16, 17, maybe 20 million people in the Netherlands. Oh, and those are the only people that speak Dutch on the planet. So um, even if we hit the largest newspaper and we got them to write about our game, our, our reach was very limited. So being able to just sort of hop abroad and go to England is be like, okay, let's talk to the press here because, you know, if they write an article in English, everybody can read it. Yeah. yeah it's sort of what kicked off my, my whole speaking career that you mentioned earlier was uh, I, I had to because just staying in the Netherlands would have do it and nobody's going to fly you to a foreign country unless you have something to, you know, something of value. Yeah. And we realized that public speaking was something of value. So sharing our experience and being open about what we do and the challenges we face has sort of been a necessity for Flambeer from the start. And then as it stopped being a necessity because, you know, the brand kind of grew. Uh, the name kind of grew our games became popular 
Um, as that happened, we just kept it as part of our studio because it, it had just become our default. So, you know, like a lot of good things end up being like strange little accidents and yeah. Vlamber being as like radically open as it is and radically transparent as it is, I think is, is partially just from that was the only way for us to get started. So that's what we did. You talk about transparency. I mean, at one point you were streaming out some of your game development, like which is not the most common thing in the world. I feel like if I if I streamed out some of my early writing, I would be like ashamed of how bad a lot of that early stuff is. Where people would be like, "How have you ever gotten paid for this?" Like, yeah. there's no way. And like, if, I mean, for you, did that make you self conscious at all? Or at this point, because you've been so open, you're just comfortable putting it out there. Yeah, I think a large part of Lambert for for me and and JW, my co founder, is that we kind of grew up in public. Like, we started at age twenty ish, both of us. Uh, we were both university dropouts, and again, we had to be transparent from the start so a lot of our failures are in public uh, a lot of the things we did wrong are public like we've never really tried to hide that we're not perfect mm. we're, we're a game studio we're learning as we go um and twitch sort of you know the the twitch stream for nuclear thrones live development um sort of happened because we got to know one of the one of the people that was at justin tv back in the days and they explained about this whole idea of YouTube but life uh, and and chat instead of comments, and we thought that was cool. So we ended up doing Mojam, which was uh, Mojang did a charity game jam back in 2013, I think. Oh yeah. And they asked us to live stream that for like a day and a half, and we were like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. Uh, we had already launched Ridiculous Fishing live on a live stream, so we thought, well, we'll just do that, and then we actually really enjoyed doing that. It was really fun to see how big the gap was between how we think of game development and how you know gamers and players and our audiences think of game development uh, that when we added a new weapon it, it was like a laser gun and we were just you know we were just messing around with the idea of just let's add a laser to our game uh, and we did and obviously the laser went through walls and through enemies and didn't hit anything because we hadn't programmed any any collision yet um and the audiences were just mesmerized by, you know, they were they were yelling at us in the chat that the laser was going through a wall. And we we're like, yeah, we, we know we we haven't programmed that yet. And you could just see in the chat, you see people responding with like, oh, you have to program that. And we're like, yeah, you got to program everything. And they're like, that's not in the engine. We're like, no, no collision as a as a abstract is. But applying it to something still requires you to actually program it. I feel like we're getting closer to the general public, at least getting at least a little bit of a better understanding of how to make games. But for so long, people had no idea how games were made who were outside of game development. It's like some magic where, like you said, if like the laser doesn't have collision, you're like, oh, I have to, you have to actually program that? Like, that's actually a part of it? Like, did you, through your streaming and just through how long you've been making games, have you found there's kind of a most common misconception people have about game development, something that you might see on Twitter or you might see on these streams where you always see like, I can't believe people don't know this is part of game development. Well, so for, for me, it's kind of a strange one. I've never been a... I've, so it, it sounds weird to say this, but I, I believe game developers are inherently not gamers. Like, yes, they play games and they love games and they love playing games, but we've seen behind the curtain. Right, like the way we look at games, the way we engage with games, is going to be different because in the back of our head, there's always something running that goes like, "How did they make that?" <laughs> yeah. Like I, I can't play Halo with my friends anymore, even though I used to back in back in high school, and I, I still do. But 
there's always this tension of I want to look at how amazing the billboarding on this thing is and how cool the level of detail switching is. Mm. And they just want to punch things, right? <laughs> and that's super fun. But you, you get a different sort of appreciation that a lot of people say they can kind of switch. And I, I'm, I'm always skeptical of that. But it might be because I've the first game I ever played was the first game I ever modded. And I was like six at the time. Like oh, I've wow. never known games to not be something that I was curious about taking apart and putting back together. So I don't I don't really know. The, the one thing that always surprises me is that there seems to be this this idea that games are a very intentional act, like mm -hmm. that we know what we are doing. And the honest truth is, like when you think about computers, they're already kind of silly. Like somebody somebody summarized it as we're we're tricking a rock into doing calculations for us. It's a piece <laughs> of silicon in a computer that's doing calculations for us. And and then we're using that to communicate graphics and sound. And then we as creators have to predict what you are going to want to be doing in our game. Yeah. And nothing can go wrong there because then silly stuff happens. But sometimes that's good too. So nobody really knows what they're doing. Like we're all sort of We're all sort of fighting this weird... Uh, unpredictable system this this the strangeness of trying to communicate through a third thing like we build this game hoping that we've thought of all the ways you could want to interact with it and then people boot up the game and immediately go the other way you're like oh my god like how did we not predict <laughs> that and like you know like a lot of things in games just kind of happen by accident and then you get better you like you get experience at you get experience that sort of like guiding players. You get experience that dealing with issues. You get experience at production. You start to learn where things go wrong when you make a game. But in the end, bad games are not made by bad developers per se. They're usually very good developers. It's one of the things that made me very sad when I saw a lot of the discussion about uh, Bioware Montreal mm. the other day. Is like the idea that Mass Effect Andromeda, which I personally enjoyed, but a lot of people had issues with um, that a game like that has to be made by people who are bad at their job or something is is baffling to me because, yeah. you know, everybody I know there is passionate. They, like, you wouldn't be in this industry if you didn't deeply, deeply care about video games. Because, mm -hmm. my God, it's a rough industry. Yeah, It's competitive. People are People are really good at what they do. It's competitive. You have to be kind of strange to be in this industry. Like, it's not the best paying industry. It's not the most thankful job. It's not, you know, there's not a lot of job security. It's kind of brutal. There's a lot of, still, sadly, a lot of crunch culture. Um, and somehow you want to be in games. You, you, you are only in this industry if you really care. Yeah. So these people are, are not bad at what they do. They're not, not passionate. They're not lazy. Um, just sometimes good people, you know, are in circumstances that don't work out and i think the idea of placing blame somewhere is a very natural one but sometimes you just look at a game and you go like you know this this was a good idea and i see what they were trying to do and over the course of two and a half years of really really hard work it turned out that you know it did not work yeah and it's if i ask students you know tell me about a game. One of the exercises I do with students is I tell them, okay, tell me about a game idea you have. And they say, well, there's a dragon in a castle, right? 
mm-hmm. and it can it can it can breathe fire, and the castle is in the clouds, and you have a sword, and you have to fight the dragon. And if I if I say that like that, your brain and and you know anybody listening, um, they can fill out that scene. You you yeah. see a dragon, you see a character with a sword, which means probably a knight. I'm gonna assume you pictured a knight with an that, armor, yep. and like there's a castle in the sky, so there's like these gray clouds maybe um, mm. and this blue sky, but maybe there's thunder or something. I don't know what your brain made of. <laughs> but your brain does that, but a computer doesn't. A computer is just ones and zeros. So a game idea is in a brain. So it fills out all of these things in ways that work out. But then a computer can't do that. So very often a game is a gamble. Like a, a game product is a gamble. Mirror's Edge is a gamble. Like that, that worked out as a game that was fun is a huge bet the studio made on that the idea of running in first person is fun i I always wonder people say like destiny which i obviously am a bit biased my my fiance proposed to me in destiny (laughs) Uh, yeah but like when you think about it somebody sat down with activision and went hey we made halo and then somebody at activision went like okay tell me more like we want to make a new game and activision went okay tell me more and then they were like it's not halo but not Halo. It's like no, no, no. It's it's kind of like the Halo, but not quite Halo. It's like an MMO ish thing. An MMO, cool. No, 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 not not an MMO. It's like three players at the same time. Three, yes, just three. Okay, sometimes six. Sometimes six. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, and the internet infrastructure for this doesn't exist yet. Like the internet isn't fast enough. It's like uh huh. Oh yeah, and we need five hundred million dollars. <laughs> it's like nobody would do that but this industry regularly takes leaps and gambles like that and that's one of the things that that i'm always a bit sad about that we just can't manage to communicate that this industry is just full of gambles all the time every mechanic is a gamble every art style is a gamble uh, they're just you know experience gambles we kind of have a feel for it but sometimes we we still get it wrong the weird part is people i think you're right people don't know about the gambles people take and very often with AAA games everyone assumes like oh it's just it's the safe option it's the lazy option to like just make another sequel or anything like that and first off i think lazy is a really bad word to throw around mm-hmm. when it comes to game development like like a lot of people were talking about oh the people who mass effect again as an example like the, well, the faces weren't good because the developers are bad or they're lazy and it's like that's just not there's so much more going on behind the scenes that you know about that and then you don't know about where it's sometimes these things just don't come together in the way that you'd want them to and even a sequel to a hugely popular franchise is taking some sort of risk like even putting call of duty back into world war ii is taking some sort of risk especially with like the scale of what that is and the money being put into that to just brush it off as oh it's another this it's another that i don't think it's a smart way to do it yeah no and and that's you know the that kind of stuff is just because for me I still obviously don't have every insight in the industry. Like, I don't know the decisions that get made. But if you knew just how broken games really are, not in, like, the bug way, but just how much duct tape is going on at any at any given moment in any video game, um, it's incredible. Like, I know of games where the intro sequence had a, had a helicopter crash, right? Like, there's this intro sequence with a helicopter crash. Big AAA game. Um and there's there's a helicopter crash somewhere early on in the game, and um, and then your your character kind of wakes up and there's stuff on fire, you know, but because your helicopter crashed. Um, but there was a bug in the engine that a few weeks before the game came out, uh, before the game had to go gold, 
uh, all the objects started floating a little. <laughs> and then when the sequence would initialize the scene, when, when the scene would start and the player would wake up, uh, all the objects would fall. Oh, that's incredible. Which is kind of great. But the bad yeah. thing about it is it caused a lot of noise. <laughs> because all those objects are falling. So it was triggering yeah. all those sound effects like this metal crate is falling, this wooden stick is falling. All of everything fell. Even the player fell. Um, oh, my God. And they were like, how do we stop this? How do, how do we stop this from happening? How do we fix this? How do we make this game presentable before it goes live? And they had one designer look at it. And you know what he did? No. He muted the sound. So wait, so did everything still fall? Everything still falls. But your character is slowly opening their eyes and it's blurry. Oh, so my God. So you don't quite notice that. And you don't hear the sound anymore because it's muted and they just put like a beep. <laughs> from the explosion over it yeah. and now the game now the game works fair enough it's done that's how games work everybody knows the the little well everybody knows a lot of people know the example of fallout fallout's code didn't support vehicles mm. so vehicles are really fast moving npcs that are half hidden underground and their head is just a vehicle <laughs> that's how I we make video that. games that's incredible yeah uh, it's 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 really cool as someone who i recently got into game dev and like i remember um, playing, I'm on the Here They Lie team, and right before that came out, I was at the studio in Sony Santa Monica, and we were playing. I was playing through the entire game for the first time, and this game's, you know, going to be shipping soon. And it's the same thing you were talking about, where they're like, there's these random bugs that it's like they're smartly hiding. Like, you, there's certain cases where you just can't get rid of it. You have to hide it in a certain way, or move this very specific part and hope it doesn't break everything else in the process. Like, it is this kind of like glue and duct tape and gum and string holding it together that very often you might get a perfect playthrough and never you know see any of those issues but a lot of people complain about how broken games yeah. are today but i and understandably it's, so fair enough um yeah but it feels like i'm surprised more often than not that they're not more broken I guess. yes well that, that's our, our trick like games are smoke smoke and mirrors for developers mm -hmm. that's what we do we try to hide to the player that what they're doing is sitting behind a computer or behind a console. Like that's that's our job. Our job is to get you in enough of a flow state that you forget that you are interacting with something and start believing that you are doing that something. Um, and part of that is making sure it doesn't break and part of that is hiding where things fall apart. Um, there's another really fun one that I know. There's a, there's a large company, a large publisher that um, is asking all of their developers to use the same engine, but that engine is mm -hmm. technically made for shooting games. But yes. um, they also make racing games with that same engine. Mm. So in those racing games, every vehicle, every car, every player-controlled object technically carries a gun <laughs> because really? otherwise the engine doesn't know what to do with it. So in the code, it's like, this vehicle carries a pistol. It's like it doesn't render the pistol. It doesn't show the pistol. It doesn't like the pistol doesn't do anything. There's no there's nothing you can do with it. But the code still needs it. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. So it's like this racing game that my super cool whatever, like, you know, my super cool fancy sports car is technically carrying an AK-47. But hey, <laughs> it's there's I, I feel like there's just like so many things like that that I, I I would love like more books and more tell-all stories about like the craziness behind certain development projects and certain teams like that because you've seen behind the curtain because you know all the smoke and mirror stuff. 
do you are you able to maybe enjoy quote unquote bad games more? Like you said, you're thinking at all times about why something is the way it is. How did they do this? How did they pull that off? Are you able to do that with bad games? Yeah, I think I think I have a fondness for bad games because, like I said, not all bad games are made by bad developers, and very often you can see what they were bad. You can you can just feel the thing that made them go like, "Oh, we should make this game," and then everything around it just kind of didn't work out. Like some of my fi- favorite games are are flawed games, not necessarily mm-hmm. bad games, but games that you know you wouldn't necessarily recommend to other people. Uh, I I love Alpha Protocol. Oh yeah, uh, the binary domain, uh, Earth Defense Force games like that, where you just look at them, and you go like, "What? What? I I mean, I see what you were trying to do, but what? <laughs> what happened?" And and I kind of I kind of love those games because very often they they just kind of doubled down on the thing that they thought would work about it, and it didn't necessarily work out, but it's still a phenomenal idea. Like the idea of Alpha Protocol is still fascinating to me. The, the way they tried to build that game narratively and structurally, I still would not dare to start doing that today with the technology we we have today. And they did it what a decade ago by now. Yeah, I think so. It's that kind of. I I think I, I think I learn more from flawed games than than perfectly executed games. Where you look mm-hmm. at you look at the game, and you can kind of see the seams because it makes it easier to see where where seams has been where seams have been fixed, right? If you can yeah. see the seams in ninety percent of the game, but they're entirely smooth in ten percent of the game, you know that was the part the developers cared about, yeah, or the part that the process allowed to to you know work out. So I don't know. I I really like games that kind of make me go like, ooh, that could have worked out better. Um, but I'm, people often ask me, like, what game would you have liked to have worked on? Mm-hmm. And the answer there is, then is, is none. Because I always feel like if I really love a game, I don't want to have worked on it because then it's kind of ruined. Yeah. Because you know everything about it. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want that. Um, it's for, I love Metal Gear Solid, uh, the original, the, the first Metal Gear Solid was one of my favorite games of all time. It was the first game I bought with my own money. And people, and I, I have a lot of things that I say like, oh, I, I would have done that differently, probably. And people go like, oh, w- would you have liked to work on that game? I'm like, no. <laughs> like, I love finding out all the stuff later on in the game about Snake and, you know, the world. And if if I had known the story up front, I wouldn't be able to play it. Nuclear Throne, our, our latest game, in part was created because since it is a roguelike, we don't even know what's going to happen. Oh, that's smart. So now we can play it. Yeah. Well, all of my other games, I kind of go like, yeah, I know what's going to happen. Yeah, you probably get sick of those after a while. Like, you've oh seen every little thing. Like you said, like half of the fun with games, and I'm a big Metal Gear Solid fan too, is that surprise is seeing things you didn't expect, things going in a different direction. And once you've, you know, worked on a game, you really can't make that happen unless you have like a No Man's Sky and you discover a new planet that, you know, you've never seen before. That's probably one for you too, where. Speaking of flawed but interesting games, where you saw No Man's Sky and your brain probably started it's like immediately working, so how this happen? It's so obvious what they were trying, what they were making, right? Like yeah. it's you. People often joke about you know the the marketing and the and the the promise of No Man's Sky, but you can tell that the developers truly, truly care about that that promise that they had at the heart of it of like this infinite universe. Um, but it's another good example. People often think that infinite content is always good. 
Mm-hmm. And it turns out that infinite content is actually really difficult because it's yeah, infinite. Do well, yeah. Um, people always go like, "Well, ninety percent of the planets in No Man's Sky aren't very interesting," and I'm like, "Yeah, but what, what did you expect? What, <laughs> did you like just a hundred percent interesting planets only? Like that's not how random works. Like the majority of ra- when people say randomness in games, that's another fun one." Um, they don't necessarily, we as developers don't talk about randomness. We talk about controlled randomness. Yeah. Like a random level would be unplayable because there would be an entrance somewhere and an exit somewhere and they don't need to be connected because it's random. Like mm-hmm. when we talk about random, we talk about very controlled randomness. Like does the hallway go left or does the hallway go right? Is there a room here? Is there no room here? Are there enemies in this room? Or is it, they're all like very small controlled little questions that we ask after each other and that's how you you generate a level in a in Nuclear Throne, for example. Uh, but it's not just like we just roll the dice and see what happens. That's a that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Um but it's it's stuff like that where a lot of times, even as a developer, you go, Oh, okay, yeah, I can do that. And then you start programming it and it's like, Oh, there's a lot of things I hadn't thought about that we should probably do. Um and then especially nowadays a lot of our, our more recent work once you know, we, we focus on trying to be as accessible as possible. People with color blindness, people that uh, have hearing impairments, you know, visual impairments. Um, we, we try to make our games accessible to them. People with mobility impairments. Uh, how do you, how do you, and a lot of those questions are really simple. You just go like, okay, you know, for people that might have uh, mobility impairments, you just make sure that they can, they can set the controls. Mm-hmm. Right, they can they can set the controls to whatever they want, uh, but then with colorblindness, for example, we had to really rethink how we did graphics, and it turned out to be really simple. Just put outlines around things. Uh, oh wow! Play play on contrast instead of just color. Um, we'd never thought about that, and then somebody just mentioned it, and we were like, "Oh right, yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. That's that's uh, subtitles and interest." Like, one of the things that really annoys me in games is when. I don't get an option to enable subtitles before yeah. the game starts. You know, the intro sequence, I have to wait until after the intro before I can go into the menu and turn on subtitles. I'm like, why didn't you just put that in front of it? I don't, <laughs> I don't, I'm confused. Now I have to rewatch the intro. That's weird. Um, so it's, it's just game development is so many little like tricks and failures and things you learn as you go and things people tell you in a hallway somewhere at an event. And there's like, oh yeah, we were making this game and we, we learned that if you do this and this, then that and that is better. And you go like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'll make a mental note of that. It seems collaborative in that way. Where, like, Of course, it's also competitive, but people are, and correct me if I'm wrong, more willing to share their failures, the things they learned, and help other people. Have you found that? It's such a part of what I love about this industry. Like, I travel around the world trying to meet developers everywhere, and everywhere you just learn new things Um and everywhere you go, you know, you share things. I, f- I think a lot of us in this industry came from um, came from a history of not necessarily being part of anything. You know, being yeah. a game developer, especially in sort of my generation, was sort of an outcast, like nerdy thing to do. People mm. didn't really, you know, if you said I'm going to make video games later, nobody was going to go like, oh, that's cool. It was kind of like, oh, you're, you're a nerd. Um <laughs> So I think for for a lot of for a lot of developers, there's sort of this homecoming feeling, you know, that that you're now part of something, and I think that makes a lot of us inclined to share. 
Um, and again, we're struggling with one of the weirdest devices in the history of mankind in, in terms of computers, which are weird devices. Um, and it turns out that the dance that we do with those is difficult and sharing about that is also just a thing that happens. I think a lot of us started with getting help from others. And because we start with getting help from others, we try to give back more. Um, and it makes for a lovely industry. Like I, how many industries do you see in which you can, you can see that, um, you know, people from major companies chat to each other just as friends. People celebrate each other's releases. Like every time I see Phil Spencer congratulate somebody at Nintendo or Sony or Shuei Yoshida, or Reggie, like they, they comment on each other's stuff. Uh, even if they're competitors, it, it doesn't really matter anymore. It, it used to be way more competitive, but. Yeah, it seems like it's recent that this stuff has kind of flipped where people are after a press conference or anything like that. People are congratulating each other where before it kind of, it felt there's almost a tension, but now that's all kind of dissipated. I think it's a new, it's a new generation of leadership, maybe, but I think this game industry has, has kind of learned that if we, if one of us wins, all of us win. Yes. And that's good. Like, that's lovely. And honestly, I'm very excited about the state of the industry in, in general. There's some things that are strange or, or worrisome, but it's, it's an industry that has survived a lot of bad moments. Like, we've had like three or four crashes. Um, the industry has fallen apart multiple times. We've lost major console makers, but look at, look at our situation right now. We have a thriving computer community. Uh, we have a thriving Xbox community, a thriving Sony community, a thriving Nintendo community. Mm-hmm. We have mobile, which we couldn't even imagine like a decade, 15 years ago. Um, an iPad as a category or, or tablets, I should say. Uh, the Switch is one of the coolest things I've ever owned in my life. Yeah. We have VR goggles that you can click your phone into. Like, <laughs> how awesome is video games right now? It's just... Yeah. It's just incredibly exciting that all of this is happening, that we can play a game across the world with each other, like full 3D games, uh, while voice chatting. Uh, I can log into... My mother is playing video games now. She started her first video game like eight months ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Final Fantasy Fifteen, by the way. She didn't even know how to dual stick. That's she her started. choice? Uh, that was, it was kind of my choice. Okay. Uh, I... She she'd always been following my career, but she'd never played a game. Like she could she if I said like oh I was visiting I was visiting Phil, she could go like oh Tibetoski or, or or Spencer or Fish like which which Phil and I'm like oh mm. no Tibetoski is like oh how's Octodad selling? <laughs> so mom, she knew she just wasn't a huge gamer. Yeah, she just never played a game. Like that wasn't her. She could read the news and she would and she would follow my Twitter. But I was like, Mom, you need to play you need to play a video game. And I think I have a video game for you because she really likes Lord of the Rings. But Shadow of Shadow of Mordor was like too too like hardcore, maybe? Yeah, action-y, maybe. Yeah, Final Fantasy XV was nice. It's this group of boys that goes on on a trip and they start as boys and eventually they kill God. Right? Like that's kind mm-hmm. of like the JRPG sort of story and i'm that's very lord of the rings right you start with frodo in a in a little field and eventually they take on like primordial evil (laughs) um and i was like that that seems similar enough that with a bit of luck and if i set it to easy mode she might be able to get through and i she she played for six and a half months total playtime of 48 hours but she did it 
It was so interesting, though, because she obviously never played a game, so she just doesn't know half of... You know, she doesn't know the tropes or the... It was fast. She would... Like, she would get a side quest, right? And you play, in that game, you play Crown Prince Noctis of Insomnia yeah. trying to deal with uh, the kingdom of Insomnia being betrayed and, and overrun, right? Yeah. Um, so she would get a side quest. Like, somebody would be like, hey, Prince, can you just bring this box to the to the next village over? It's on your route anyway. And it's like the opening quest. And my mom's like, no, I'm a crown prince. Are you kidding me? I'm not bringing your <laughs> box. You bring your box. So She's my mom, fully investing in that role. It was so because she isn't necessarily invested like she she kind of is. But then on the other side, she just got told to save the world. So she's going to save the world. I don't have time for onions. Like she doesn't know whether that's important or not. So everything is important to her. But like if somebody told you, hey, you got to go save the world. And then somebody else would stop you and be like, hey, chocobos are like big yellow chickens. Do you want to go check them out? You'd be like, listen. Are, are you evening listening? I'm I'm trying to save the world right here. I don't have time for onions. I'm trying to save the world. Sounds like a fantastic t-shirt. Like, right. That is, it's so good. Did she have this the issue where um, when a lot of people first grab a controller, they don't really understand the two thumbsticks where their camera control is a little off yep. compared to their actual movement? Did she immediately like look to the ground or look to the sky? One of my favorite things is we, like, a few hours in, she looked at me and she's like, this camera is making me nauseous. I don't know. I feel like the stick is upside down. And I have to be like, <laughs> oh, my God, you play inverted. I th- There's this weird thing. My brain had sort of, like, theorized that inversion comes from whether you played flight sims or shooters back when you were younger. And if you played flight sims, you'd play, you'd play um, uh, normal uh, or inverted. And if you play shooters, you'd play uh, normal. Uh, and it turns out that's just not true. It's just a purely, like, I don't know what it is, but people have preferences that pre-exist gaming. Uh, and my mom proved it, which is cool. Um, or or another thing that made me laugh super hard was she was going to meet the, like, uh, one of the one of the suspicious characters in the game. You know, like, you have in JRPGs, you always have that character that is either, like, the antagonist or, like, the the secret the secret ally in the in the final act. Yes. Like, there's a character like that in this game, um, and, and she was going to meet him, and he's, like, entirely clad in black, and he has, like, long purple hair, and he wears sort of, like, a wing, and he has, like, a, like a hat that's kind of, like, creepy, and he always tilts his head back, you know, the way Japanese bad guys do, mm-hmm. and he gets introduced, in the text, he gets introduced as, like, the suspicious stranger, and his music is, like, a dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, and everything just screams, like, this this dude is suspicious, right? Yes. So I was really excited about my mom meeting him. And, and my mom messaged me uh, one day when she was playing. And she's like, I got to a new place. And I'm like, oh, cool. What is it? She's like, it's called Golden Key. I'm like, oh, cool. Anything happened? She's like, yeah, I met this very suspicious this very suspicious guy. I'm like, a suspicious guy? She's like, yeah, yeah, I didn't trust him. I'm like, what, what did he do that made you not trust him? She's like, well, I walked up to him. I'm like, uh-huh. She's like, and then uh, I talked to him, and I'm like, mm-hmm. She's like, and then he just kind of went like, do you want to buy weapons? <laughs> and I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, he tried to sell me guns. I'm like, no, he did Oh, and that's, I realized that there's a shopkeeper right there. That's incredible. But, yeah, if somebody walked up to me and was like, hey, you want to buy some guns? I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's way out of line. Like, don't Yeah, get that's away way more me. suspicious yeah. than Hat Dude with the weird yeah. music. So my mom was terrified of the shopkeeper. 
And I had to convince her that that was like that they're okay, that they're not actually like humans, but kind of a metaphor for a shop. Um, But you know that kind of stuff. Like I have, I it it's invisible to me how much unspoken knowledge we have in games. You know that time doesn't flow forward necessarily in most games. Time doesn't move unless you progress the story. Because you're like, do do I have time for this? I'm like, you you do i yes most games there's no time she's like because she said no to that first quest you know about bringing the box to the next village yeah i was like no that's the opening quest you need to do that she's like oh no i'm just gonna sit around until something happens and i'm like (laughs) "Mm, i see what happened it's something we don't think about because so many especially those big triple a games where you need to save the world like something dire is happening you can't just sit around and dilly dally so uh, people who are not used to that might immediately think i can't waste time picking up a box or delivering something or helping this character because everyone could die if i don't go quickly it was so fun to watch i she finished final fantasy and now she started on dragon age okay that's dragon a good age inquisition. i i thought that one of because one of my favorite realizations was that she was just going to ignore every side quest I wanted a game where those side quests have a, a result, like a tangible use in your mm-hmm. trying to save the world. And a large part of Dragon Age Inquisition is building up this sort of rebellion, this inquisition um, that will help you eventually save the world, right? So yeah. uh, I wanted a game in which side quests had a narrative purpose. And I found one, and now she's happily doing side quests. She's like, yesterday when i was visiting she was trying to find a healer for a a camp somewhere in the in the hinterlands and she was very happily trying to find this healer um she still gets confused between what a waypoint is and what her quest marker is so that's (laughs) sometimes unfortunate um but you know like i can remote play into her playstation which is another incredible technology it's one of Uh, my favorite features yeah it's just amazing so i can watch while it's happening and sort of like give her explanation Uh, she's still mesmerized by the fact that you can plug an earpiece into the controller and then speak to humans (laughs) it's just so lovely seeing the things that are exciting and strange to her like you know when music starts playing and she just go like i never knew that game had such good music or uh or recently she apologized for shutting off my computer when i was a kid when i would say like no, no no i'm almost at a save point Oh, yeah. And she just explained to me. She thought, like, if I turn the computer off and you turn it back on, the game just continues where you were. And I'm like, no. No, I, <laughs> I needed save games. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, thank <laughs> you. It was a very emotional moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of adorable. Yeah. Like, that's a funny thing. Yeah, it's a lot of people just have no idea, like, what that really means. Because I have the exact same thing with my mom. Because my mom has never played a video game. My dad, when uh, I was younger, was obsessed with Mario Kart 64. Um, which was like this funny thing where he would race in a time trial and create a ghost and learn how to drift better than me. It's like I would play games all the time. For some reason, I could never beat his ghosts in Mario Kart. (laughs) It would be always like the main track, and he'd only play Mario, and he would just be sitting there and like understanding exactly the right way to get a boost as you're uh, like going into different turns. And it's But my mom would never play, so every time, same thing for me. I would be like, I I just need to get to this one point in Final Fantasy VII. She's like... You need to just turn this off. Yep, yep, and it, it would turn off because you know they parents said it would go off. Yeah, but yeah, the amount of hours I've lost replaying the same thing is quite numerous. 
because you know like I played a lot of games when I was a kid, even though I was mostly just seeing how I could break them. Um, but you know, I I'd still play them. And then the, there goes my save game. I've even corrupted some save games with when my parents got enough of me saying that there was a save point ahead. Like I always wonder, is the next generation just going to have a really rough time? You know, if if my generation has kids and we all know what save points are, yeah, that that excuse is gone. Like it it's totally a, is. It's a nostalgic excuse. <laughs> like your game is constantly saving. You can, yeah. act, you can actually now just turn it off and no one will get that mad. Yep. It's uh, like, dude, PlayStation is rest mode. It's like, no, I need to... If, if if I ever have kids and they go like, no, I need to go to a save point, I'm just going to be like, just put it in rest mode. It'll be fine. <laughs> it's, so, it's so weird now, too, because now I expect to... Have, like, I still in the back of my head think, where's the save point or how do I save this? I was just playing Pyre and I kept looking all over to be like... Does this auto save, or if I turn yeah. this off, am I going to lose all this data? Because you're so used to that. Uh, it's it's cool because streaming and like what you talk about when you're watching your mom play a game, being able to watch other people play games has been kind of revelatory. And seeing how people tackle certain things and seeing the way people see games versus how you see games. We were, you just talked about Dragon Age. I had um Mike Laidlaw on the podcast not that long ago, and he does this cool thing where he'll just stream out different games that he didn't make and kind of talk to his audience similar to what you were talking about about here's how i think they did this here's why mm-hmm. this certain bend in the level was here so that they could load up the textures before you got to this other spot and that's it's fascinating to me to see game designers play other games and talk about often flawed games in that way and because you're so behind the curtain and you understand game design a lot when you get your own games reviewed by GameSpot or ign or anything like that uh do you how do you kind of take that criticism from people who don't always know the inner workings of game design? Are you able to take a lot of that and learn from it and use that almost as like QA for the future? Or very often, because this person hasn't been behind the scenes, do you brush off some of those reviews? I think it's sort of, it's somewhere in the middle. A lot of game design is being capable as a human to take feedback, mm-hmm. which is, it's rough. Like, it's not fun, but um a large it's part a lear- it's a learned skill i think people don't realize like it, it takes time to yeah correctly take criticism well for example one of the one of the most painful things that can happen uh in terms of feedback is you know when you're showcasing a game at, at you know depending on arcade expo or or gamescom or wherever you're showcasing when somebody walks up to the game and then kind of looks at it and just kind of goes eh, and keeps walking oh. and it's just like this this like heart-wrenching just like Oh, my game wasn't even good enough to warrant a second <laughs> oh, look. Yeah. Oh, I worked two years on this. What have I been doing with my life? Um, but then on the other hand, somebody will sit down, play for five minutes, and just go like, yeah, I get it. And just kind of walk away, like watching that play session and seeing where they made that decision of like, eh, that's actually quite useful. Because mm. you just kind of go like, oh, okay. Yeah, this person got to here, and here they realized that this game wasn't for them. Is there a way to ensure that this moment is later in the game or that it does not happen in the game? Did they run into a problem or an issue? Like a lot of a lot of the fee- if I open my Steam review page or my uh, my Steam reviews right now or my refund requests even better, uh, a lot of it is just like the game is shit, right? That's it, and that's that's useless. Yep. But a lot of it is like, oh, I didn't like this feature, or I think you know somebody will say, oh, the the first boss was too hard. And that's one of those feedback things that as a game designer you get very you get very careful about 
because it doesn't actually mean the first boss is too hard. It, it could mean the first boss, boss is too hard. It might have too much HP. The attack patterns may be too difficult. But also just mean that the player didn't have the right weapons or wasn't aware of a mechanic. Or you know, there's like hundreds of ways to interpret that feedback. So you, you kind of become happy about any piece of feedback you can get that is given with a certain respect, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then everything else, I just kind of like if if somebody starts by calling me names, I stop reading the post right there. Yep. Because it's just it's not useful. I don't get anything out of it. It it doesn't. I've I've gotten to the point where, you know, and I think a lot of game developers have where a lot of that just sort of turns into awful noise. You're just kind of like, okay, I guess like people are calling me names because I made a game. Uh, but then on the other side, you know, there's people who are are very passionate about a game. And don't exactly know how to communicate that. So sometimes I get very angry emails and I just kind of read and just write a really polite answer. It's like, hey, there's a human reading your email. Like, appreciate, you know, your, your, the time you took to write this email and we'll look at the criticisms you had. And sometimes you just get very apologetic emails back. You know, people didn't expect there to be a human behind the game. Um, people didn't expect us to actually read it, stuff like that. And it's, it's, you know, this industry is still coming to terms with how to humanize industry. And I think, honestly, live streaming has been a huge part of, of starting that process anew. Because up until now, we always tried to be so perfect as an industry. You know, like, yeah. nobody would say we didn't know what we were doing. Like, back in the days, the, the like, the rock star developers, they, they seemed flawless. Like, yeah, sure, they could make a bad game, but, you know, then something bad happened because clearly they knew what they were doing. And I think only now we've we've started to get to the point where developers are humans, not yeah. rock stars. We're we're just people. We're just trying. We're a lot of us are having fun doing our job and excited to be sharing our games. And there are human faces on stage. I Ubisoft C three conference this year was beautiful. It was my favorite in it, so in like a long ass time. It was so human and the, like you know the developer of uh, Mario vs. Rabbits like just you know shedding a tear seeing Miyamoto on stage. Uh, you, the um, the developers of uh, Beyond Good and Evil Two uh, being clearly emotional on stage about the fact that this game is exists. Yeah, is they yeah. can talk <laughs> about it yeah. like. That kind of stuff, like that, that's how I know the games industry. This is like people like laughing and crying and despairing and hoping and, 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 and playing around and messing around with something. And one night they're just coding something silly and they go like, Oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. I should make a game about this. And like, you know, excited emails and, and, you know, like a, a tap on the shoulder if, if a launch went poorly. Um, like a big congratulations of a launch went well like we're all in this together and that's how i know game development and for me that's a large part of what makes this such a such an enthralling industry to be in is it's it's so human everything we do is about humans it's about players it's about developers it's about people interacting making them happy making them feel making them care making them proud making them regret like it's you we do what we work with is humans and yeah for me that is it's just incredibly exciting to see how this grows and what is changing and and you know watching my mom play for me was genuinely a very special moment because i realized we can we can reach anybody if we can just make the games for them it's it, 
it's a beautiful industry. The, the human aspect of it is one of my favorite developments about the games industry right now because even um, you mentioned kind of the rock stars of game development, but it felt like for so long people knew the companies behind what they were playing, but not the people. There were a couple of main names, but when you think about authors, you you, you know who's like who wrote the book that you're mm-hmm. reading. You know the people in the band, not just the band name. And now it feels like we're actually knowing different people behind who make the games, especially when you speak about indies, because it's it's a smaller team. With Pyre, like I've been, you know, following Greg Kasavin's writing writing since GameSpot, and you know, I know him personally, and I it makes me care more about that project. And with Tacoma, like I I know Steve and uh, different people from that studio, and understanding who makes these games does add something to it. And what you mentioned earlier, I think, was really interesting, where a lot of the the anger and the vitriol you see from people who are angry at your game, or if I would write a review for GameSpot, I would look at the comment section, which was maybe a mistake, but it would just be this <laughs> stream of anger at GameSpot, and just it, you could tell the person wasn't thinking there was actually a human who wrote that review. And as soon as I respond to them in a level-headed way, like, hey, here's what I thought about this, or here's why this part of the review happened here, here's why this happened here, I would almost always get something apologetic back, or at least normal. I'm like, hey, thanks for taking the time to respond to me, and suddenly you're human again you're not yelling into the void that is the internet you're not tweeting random hate at someone you don't know when suddenly you actually connect on reddit on twitter on something like that it changes the entire game because people realize they almost like see themselves they take a step back and like oh i was being an asshole and this person was being a human let's just talk about this and we have that more and more and we still have the terribleness we still have these oh yeah stretches on twitter where you're like the world is terrible but then there's times where people talk and it's it's so heartening to see yeah it's like there's obviously there, there are parts of the internet that take extra effort to be awful when they realize there's a human yes. um but i i do like we need to fix that. That's an issue that we as a species, we need to deal with what the internet is and, and how it works and what we want out of it. But that's an entirely separate conversation. What's what's exciting to me is a lot of what it facilitates that is, that is good. Mm-hmm. And in terms of video games, a lot of it has been phenomenal. Like independent game development as it exists now would not be possible without the internet would not be possible without the app store would not be possible without steam would not be possible without twitch would not be possible without you know the forums and the reddits and the neo gaffs and the all of that um is important this community that has slowly grown around game development uh people that care about games people that care about game development people that care about you know the people that do game development all of that is a relatively recent um relatively recent development but it it has made this industry something very strange on this this like weird intersection between technology and creativity and business and and marketing and you know just this it's if i some people ask me sometimes like what do you what do you think the industry will look like in five years and i always think if i knew what the answer to that was i probably wouldn't be here anymore because yep to me, the exciting part is I have no idea. I look forward to in three years being like, this might be big in a few years. Let's make a game. See if we can be done in two years when it's actually a big deal. And that's 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 fun. That's exciting to me. Um, the Nuclear Throne was a great way of playing on this Twitch thing. Like, what if we make a game live on Twitch, show people how this is made, create a community around not just the game, but also the development of the game. 
and see if people like that. And now it's a category on Twitch. It's like a real thing. People can yeah. do that now uh, officially instead of you know us having to say that we were playing Nuclear Throne. Now we can say we were developing Nuclear Throne, you know, mm-hmm. or we we sold our game via uh, via an API hack on Twitch. Uh, so if you subscribe to our channel, you could um, you could redeem a Steam code. And we did that for like two years. It stopped six months ago or something. And now there's a Twitch store like that. That kind of development is fun for me, and it's fun seeing how we can use Vlambeer to you know mess with that, experiment with that. Um, and then also have fun making fun games. That's one of those things that's always fascinating to me is the idea of maybe riding certain trends and trying to figure out when I start this game versus, let's say, two years when it comes out, will what I'm making still hit as hard as I hope it will? Where, like, right now you see Battlegrounds being the biggest thing in the world where this, you know, this small team has now sold, like, five million units or something oh insane my God, right. like that right now. It's it's so big, and someone right now is probably making a Battlegrounds clone, but in a year or two when that comes out, will it still mean as much? Like, will people still care about that? I just had Dave Lang on the podcast. And I was talking about Extinction, which they had just announced. And mm-hmm. it's just one of those things that interests me. It's like when you guys were like first kind of concepting the idea, how much do you have to think about what the landscape is going to be like in this industry that is constantly changing where suddenly you think about someone who started making an MMO uh, right when WoW was big. And then by the time they were ready for it, it the MMOs were done. Like yep. people didn't really care about those types of game. And then suddenly you don't know what to do. You're kind of just sitting there. It's It's a really... I mean, like you said, it's it's exciting. It's, it's terrifying. I would assume if you're investing, it's in the it, gambles it's that we started with, right? Like it's gambles. Yeah. We we make gambles about. We start on this. We think this will happen in like a year and a half from now when our game is done. But then, meanwhile, we're we're we still need to live. We still need to exist. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea that Apple was gonna uh, kill 32 bit support. Like a year ago, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so now we have to scram- we had to scramble to make sure that all of our games were 64-bit proof, and we're releasing an update to Ridiculous Fishing soon. But that was not a thing that I had scheduled that I had made time for. Uh, it yeah. was just I've learned to put emergency time in our schedule. Like, you know, <laughs> like have like two months in every schedule. That's like everything is on fire, and we need to fix it. <laughs> uh, that's just a default thing you put in in video game budgeting for for time. Um, but yeah, it's, I didn't expect that. And then that happened. And now if we had taken a gamble that might have been dependent on those two months, we might be too late. Now, there is somebody on this planet who was working on a game exactly like Battlegrounds, but is still working on it. That, and that's so... Isn't that's that so the, terrible to hear. Like that's so like depressing to hear because I I think you're right. Where every time there's a big hit, someone was just about to release something just like it, and suddenly yep. you're like, now what? Like now what do I do? And there's so, there's often room for similar games. I mean, you think about like League of Legends and Dota are both massive, and they are different in a lot of ways. But if you're making elevator pitches, they're going to sound pretty similar. But yep. now like that's going to cannibalize that other game that you know Battlegrounds Part Two is like a a thing that you can't really release right now because everyone's just on this one platform but that's one of those interesting like whenever a game comes out i'm just waiting for somebody on twitter to go oh my god oh no yeah i was working on something exactly like this and i was like four months out it's like that's part of the that's part of the game of the games industry is you know you never know how things are going to play out and you know you deal with the card you get and sometimes you just don't get any cards and that's 
you know, that's one of the challenges we deal with is it's, it's a, it's a game. And it's just to the price you're playing against, like the thing you're gambling is whether you can afford rent. Which, yeah, when you put it like that, it sounds terrifying. Well, that's the thing. People really aren't in this industry unless they care because who else would do that? Like if you're yeah. a good programmer, you could go anywhere and get a good programming job with better job security, with probably better pay. You just wouldn't be making games. And for people that would be making games, the people that are playing games, that sounds miserable. Yeah. So they make games. And that's, you know, that's again a, a large part of why I love being in this industry it's just we whether we love or hate the games that exist now you know whether we're making games because we love what exists or whether we're making games because we wish there were other things and whether we're making games because we want to make money or whether we're making money to try and make games like it doesn't matter we are all in some way or form extremely passionate about games mm. whether they have to be fun or sad or teach people something about the world or you know just entertain us for a little help us escape from the real world um we're we're here because we want to make experiences for people to play uh, and sometimes that involves rocket launching an airplane while jumping from a jeep that's falling from a bridge <laughs> and sometimes you like solemnly explore an a spaceship in orbit above earth in vr and that's all like we can all talk to each other because we all have this this base interest in this weird medium. That passion, I feel like, has come through more than ever. You talk about how awesome it is to be in this industry right now with everything that's available out there. And I think the idea that because the tools are much more readily available, because the it's easier to release games on Steam and PSN, all this stuff... You're seeing so many incredible indie games. You're seeing a lot of like tiered indie systems. You think about like there's very small, low budget indie games. There's now like these mid tier indie games. Then you think about a Pyre or a Tacoma mm -hmm. that you could see that on E3 stage because they're that big and there's that big of an audience. Like we mentioned the health of the industry. Do you think indies, because we have small indies and maybe triple I as some people call them, do you think they're <laughs> even in a better place than you ever imagined? Like there's, there's with the budgets that are out there and, the games that are coming out, like, are is, is independent development as good as it's ever been? I think it's as strange as it's ever been. <laughs> um, like, independent, independent is such a strange thing nowadays because it used to, when I started in the indie scene back in 2010, it was 30 people, you know, like, yeah. not like just 30 people, but 30 people that you would know about, that you would meet at events, that you would, you know, hang out with at GDC or something. And now it's this, massively international community uh, and i meet indies in in uh, montevideo in uruguay and i meet them in tokyo in japan and i meet them in amsterdam in the netherlands and i meet them in in london and in the us and in canada and every there south africa the the middle east wherever you go there's independent development like you said because the tools are there but it also created this that tiered system um, and I think what's actually really good about indie right now is that we're we're finally allowing it to fragment. Mm. Like for a while, we really wanted to be a thing. We really wanted indie to be the other thing from AAA. You know, like you have your big yeah. AAA games, and then you have your interesting, strange, weird uh, indie games. Kind of like how movie does it, right? 
Yeah, and everyone always assumed, like we talked about earlier, the AAA games play it safe to a certain extent and follow genre conventions, and the indie game is where a lot of the innovation starts coming from. Yeah, and then what what ended what we've now finally allowed is to understand that games aren't necessarily like movies. The the amount of the amount of weirdness that goes into making a game does set it apart from making a movie. Mm. Um, and we are now okay with saying, okay, you've got your like little strange experimental freeware stuff. There was this amazing. Uh, thread on Twitter a while ago by somebody who goes by the name of uh, Moshboy. Okay, yeah. And they just listed a thousand, just like a thousand freeware games. Um, a thousand uh, game makers that made free games. Um, and that's a very valid category of indie games. These weird little super experimental, interesting, personal, uh, just little things that people really wanted to make. Um, not because they wanted to get rich or they wanted to get famous or they wanted to make a hit. They just wanted to make this thing. That was it. There's, an, there's nothing more. We made a game about hunting a Yeti. And one of the jokes about the game is that, you know, it's a Yeti. So it might or might not exist. Um, <laughs> and that, that was just something we wanted to make one day. So we made it in two days and we were done. And that's, that's a valid category of indie games. And then you've got your, your sort of traditional indies, which are, now, people often say, like, it's the pixel art games, that kind of stuff. That's a category of indies. It's people who make certain types of games, and those certain types of games have a certain aesthetic, and, you know, they played with that, and they experiment with that, and they mess with that. And then you've got the people who've made money making indie games, or who found investment, and they're making indie games, but they're more like fire, they're more like, uh, you know, volume. They're more like games like that that are of a, of a somewhat larger scale and they're kind of starting their own graphics race, I guess. Mm-hmm. That, and that's also a category of indie games. But if you all try to treat that as if it's one category, it stops making sense. Yep. So I'm just exciting that you can now go to like itch.io and just randomly roll a game and get something weird and interesting and strange. And yeah. then if you want a, a big indie game, you just boot up steam and you see what's at the top of the charts or you go search for something that sounds interesting for you you follow your favorite developers and you you buy something from them but they're now fully parallel possibilities and that's good i think that actually makes indie healthier it's harder than ever i see a lot of games well harder is not the right word there's more competition than ever i see a lot of good games sit on steam spy and i check steam spy every now and then and I just look at them and I'm like, how did that game only sell like 2,000 copies? Yeah. And it kind of breaks your heart because, you know, there's people who spend two years on it. Um, but yeah, no, competition is like brutal right now. Um, but yeah, no, in, in terms of the opportunity to make games, the possibility to make games, it's better than ever. And I think that's ultimately nobody, I hope nobody ever believed that unlike music you know every garage band in the world would be able to become a successful you know international sensation like the truth is that just like in music just in like in photography the majority of us are going to fail yeah flambeer is not at a point where i can be where i can sit back and just think we're done right like if we've released two games in a row that are bad we're gone yep that's it like we probably I hope, I sincerely hope that if we ever make a game that people don't love, that our fans will go like, okay, you know what, this one wasn't great, next one. Um, but if if we do that twice, it's over. Like, that's end of story. And that's that remains the 
the truth for the majority of the games industry is getting there is really hard. Staying there is really hard. It's a bit easier. Uh, but in, in the end, again, like the, the privilege I have that I can now spend my time making games without worrying about paying my rent and just worrying about the games. Like I'm so thankful that, you know, I'm a university dropout that started a company with a guy I didn't <laughs> like because he was the only other guy that dropped out of university. Like <laughs> that I got to this point where I can travel around the world and, and speak to indies everywhere and make games on airplanes program from my home office, uh, you know, like be working with all these people that I just, you know, I love their work. And they trust us enough to make a game that's worthy of their work, um, their art, their music. Like it's such a, it's such a, it's a joy. And I'm, I'm, it's stressful at times and it's horrifying at times. And I spend more than enough time staring at my computer wondering what I'm doing. Um, but it's just, in the end, I'm, I always end up feeling thankful that these are the problems I, I have. And it's, it's, it's a good time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I could tell you love it. Like, that's always fun for me to talk to people who, and like you said, you usually almost have to love it if you want to stay in this industry for a long time. But it's, it's fun talking to people who, even though they go through a lot of like ups and downs with this stuff, they just love what they do and love how cool the industry is right now. And you did mention itch.io. It, it's so much fun, even though a lot of these games do get overlooked. Uh, Emily is Away is a game that came out oh. like two or three years ago that I just, I had no idea about. And I did a, um, a game of the year kind of wrap up podcast with some other uh, writers who I really appreciate, like Karen Pettit and Tom McShay. And oh, yeah, yeah. they brought that game up and I was like, I have never heard of this. And it became one of my favorite things immediately. And it's the stuff that there's so much cool stuff just sitting out there that maybe breaks genre conventions or starts in its entire own genre that you never really thought about. And suddenly it's this, this hour long thing is my favorite thing. This, you know, yeah. I mean, Firewatch was bigger, but that was one of those games where I was like, this is one of my favorite things I've played in a long time. And it's, it's not this major massive thing. I'm not even, there's no combat. I'm not fighting anything. I'm just kind of experiencing it. And it's, it's cool that we're at least at a point. There are still those people who hate walking simulators. There's still those people who don't and think that's, certain things are games. So that's fine. Fair, fair enough. That's entirely up to them. Uh, I, yeah. I, and I mean, there's almost, there's so much just innovation in shooting as well. Like if you just in shooting games, the amount of stuff I've, like people always kind of like joke about, what was it? Bulletstorm? Yes. Yeah, I, yeah. Just Bulletstorm was so full of interesting ideas that I, I played that, I, I played that game and I was like, oh my God, like I didn't know you could do this much with shooting games anymore. Um, but th that's still happening. I play a new Call of Duty. I play a new Battlefield. I play a new like one of those major one of those major. The Titanfall games. Two is one of the best Titanfall. shooters I've played ever. My God, Titanfall Two! Like just, um, you play these games, and you're like, there's still so much to do, so much to try. Near Automata this year, just straight up my list of favorite games ever. It's uh, I'm still need to play it. I, I feel uh, like I'm missing out by not playing it. Yeah, if if I because you mentioned Emily is away. If you didn't play Event Zero which was a little indie game a while ago. Um, it's like my favorite walking simulator, I guess. Hmm. Uh, but it's mostly in you, it's a, you are on a spaceship and the only companion on the spaceship, the only one there with you is this onboard ship AI that is a chatbot. And okay. you have to figure out what happens by talking to it. Um, and then in the meanwhile, you're exploring this, this spaceship. Uh, it's, it's interesting and weird and strange. 
Um, but then Nier Automata, on the other end, is interesting and we're in a stretch, but it's a trip, it's a double, triple A, what is it? Two and a half A's? 2.7 Yeah, it's probably, probably 2.5. Yeah, A's. like, yeah. Well, how many ever A's? Uh, <laughs> but I, I also like that that boundary is blurring a bit. Like, you have like triple, like triple I is effectively just like 2.7 A or something. I don't, <laughs> and then triple A studios are now putting out vac, like, what do you call them? Vacancies? Like, they, they have job offers for, for yeah. quadruple A. And I'm like, okay, you know what? This is all fine. We still don't yeah. know what we're doing. We have no idea. Yeah, but we just we'll just make up some stuff and go with that, and it'll be fun. Yeah, like because I, I, Call of Duty at this point is probably quintuple A. Like that's like the Aest of the A. But yeah. yeah, there's like there's a lot of stuff in between that's fun. And then there's something like um, the new Ninja Theory game. I cannot think of the name of it right now. Um, that's like going to be. It's almost they're calling it kind of like this triple A six to eight hour experience, but that's only thirty dollars because they're you doing mean, it in a different um... way. Hellblade? That uh yes, that's it. Yeah. So like there's there's a lot of stuff in between that we're seeing. Oh, for a while it seemed like that B tier game had disappeared. That kind of mid level game because the uh like a lot of t- like THQ games would come out that were kind of in that zone. But mm-hmm. we're seeing it, I was worried for a while it would just be indie, like and AAA and that was it. But now it feels like we have a little bit of everything and maybe these terms don't even mean anything anymore. Yeah. There's just so much all over the place in the middle and on the outside that now there's just Games of all sizes, and in a yep. world where this, you know, Hunger Games esque thirty dollar shooter that only really has like one mode and one idea can be the biggest thing in the world. Like, you have no idea what's going to be big next, and it's I, like you I mean, said, it's it's fun. In twenty thirteen, we made an aggressive fishing simulator <laughs> that ended up being one of the most popular games on iOS on that year. I and we're love like, that you game. know what? Okay, yeah, this is fair. This is okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fine. fair enough. Video games. It's, it's amazing. I, I love it so much. I love the fact that we can just like nothing. We're not worried about, you know, just shooters dominating the world. There's a little bit of everything out there that's just awesome. Yep. And the innovation you see even in spaces that you thought there was no innovation left to have is totally there. Uh, Rami, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I could probably talk to you about this for like six hours. But uh, <laughs> one last thing I, I definitely oh, yeah. wanted to bring up. Um, I had Dave Lang on the podcast not that long ago. We kind of talked about the Chicago development scene. Because people talk about that, how there's a certain maybe flair a certain type of game that might come out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people talk about that a lot for you as someone who's traveled all over the place. Have you found that different countries, different cities, different regions have a certain flair or a certain type of game that comes out of it? Do you think that where you come from determines the type of the types of games that come out? Yeah, to some, to some, to some extent, absolutely. Like the Netherlands makes uh, usually somewhat like I wouldn't say self-deprecating, but sort of self-conscious, weird, somewhat artsy games usually. Uh, mm-hmm. Hidden Folks being a really good example of that, but also uh, Rius by Abbey Games. And then Chicago has a certain flair. But, um, you know, when, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. When an American studio makes a war game, you know, America has a, has a, has a pride towards its army, towards its, its victories in war. Uh, that would obviously make those heroic games, right? The the American War Story is a story about a hero overcoming impossible odds. Well, if you look at um, Eastern European studios, they have mostly suffered war, right? They're yeah. not like you look at the middle of Europe or or countries in which war is pretty recent. They're probably not going to make that heroic game. You get a game like This War of Mine, which is a completely different flavor on the exact same subject, um, and and just that is for me, kind of proves that that has to be true. It's also just the people you surround yourself with. Usually communities come from 
one studio doing really well and then sort of facilitating the community by, you know, renting a space or giving talks or, you know, being just being the, the person people look up to. So, of course, it's sort of like it seeds the industry in that location. And in that regard, I, I think Chicago is a, is a great example of a scene that came from sort of like they had sort of a trip. They had a triple A presence and then kind of didn't and then kind of did. But then in the meanwhile, there's also all these weird little indie things coming out like Octodad, obviously being a huge, huge influence on the indie scene in Chicago. Um, so there's a lot of like somewhat weirder stuff going on that they, they like to celebrate out there. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, like other places are very different. Boston was really interesting in that they had AAA studios and indie studios, but no publishers there. So they created this really weird sort of business centric indie that was very typical to just Boston. Like I'd never seen there anywhere else. Um, and then people in other places are making games that are, you know, very, they try to be very much like the mobile games that are popular, but with a twist, you know, that's some places exist like that. Um, and it's, it's just, fa I, I love going to a new place and sort of finding out where the flavor they have comes from, you know, yeah. where the, this, where did this game development come from? Uh, but that also makes it very exciting to me. Like, um, one of my favorite games is Farsh, uh, F-A-R-S-H, which is made by an Iranian guy, mm. um, uh, who lived in the Netherlands for a while, actually. Um, but what is interesting about the game is about rolling carpets. It's about rolling up and unrolling a carpet. And if you rotate the carpet, every tile that is underneath, underneath you rotates with you. And it's a puzzle game. Oh, and it's such a simple mechanic. But I had genuinely never seen that mechanic before in my life. And I was so confused about how such a simple mechanic had just never happened. Yeah. And I realized that for us, when we think about games as something that expands and contracts, we think about snakes. It's just sort mm. of the default thing we go to. And snakes, they eat things. And it turns out that carpets cover things. <laughs> so it was way like he just came up with it. He didn't come up with it. He didn't go to find a new mechanic. He just started with a carpet because that was a thing that wasn't it, that, that came to his mind. Yeah. And then the carpet cover things. And I don't think anybody in, you know, the, the Western world in Western Europe or America would have had that same inspiration and thus not that same again. Like there are unexplored mechanics waiting to be found by people in cultures unlike our own. That's the coolest part I think about this is as uh, when these tools for game development are easier to use, cheaper, and they're out there and people start understanding them. I want to see what's the, the French film of video games, the, mm -hmm. the, the things that we, we haven't even seen because a lot of other types of people in different countries haven't had the opportunity to make games. Suddenly those come out and we play things where we're like, oh my God, I've never thought of that. I want more, oh my God, I never thought of that moments. Yep. It's, they're all coming. They're happening everywhere. It blows my mind every time I travel. And I'm, I'm only home like 60 days a year uh, at best. The rest of my time is just spent traveling around the world. And I program on airplanes and I program on the road. But you know, when I, when I travel, just the amount of times I go, oh my God, yeah, that's awesome like it's just overwhelming i can't wait for all of that for all of those games to start reaching you know the the indie mainstream so to speak yeah it's it's so cool to see uh i don't want to take up any more of your one of your 60 days at home so uh <laughs> rami where can people find you on twitter and is there anything that vlambeer is working on that you could talk about so you can find me on Twitter, T-H-A underscore Rami, or just search for Rami Ismail. Ismail being like Ismail, like I'm postal mail or something. Or <laughs> you can uh, you can check out Vlambeer, which is V-L-A-M and then beer as in the drink. 
Um, Vlambeer currently, you know, the, it's one of those fun questions you get every now and then. Like, if you can talk about anything, uh, what are you working on? Usually mm -hmm. the answer has to be no, because yep. if I could talk about it, I would have talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> if if I can't, then I, I it's no. Uh, we are we are we are playing around with a lot of prototypes. Uh, me and JW, my co-founder and I, after Nuclear Throne, we really needed a break from each other. Like I mentioned, that we didn't like each other when we started the company. We still mm -hmm. kind of don't like each other. So after a very long project, we, need, <laughs> we just kind of need a respectful break from each other. So after Nuclear Throne, we both did. I've been working on uh, maintenance for old games. Uh, so there's updates coming out for Nuclear Throne and Ridiculous Fishing. And uh, JW in the meanwhile has been working on a game of his own, uh, separately from Flambeer with uh, his partner and a bunch of friends. Uh, it's called Minute. It's going to be releasing on the Devolver Digital. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lovely game, and I can absolutely recommend uh, checking it out uh, when it comes out. Um, in the meanwhile, Vlambeer, uh, me and JW, were just messing around with a bunch of prototypes, and there are a few that are interesting, but we're not we're not at the point yet where we want to commit a year of our lives to it. So we're just messing around, seeing if we can make them more fun, more interesting. If we can find like that little spark that will make us go, right, that's the one. Yep. And if we hit that, we'll 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 make sure to to yell because it's been a while since we lost an ass. It's been three years since we announced Nuclear Throne. It's about time we announce something new, but we don't want to rush it. Yeah. Not rushing it's probably a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, Rami, thanks so much for doing this. I think what you do, all all the different talks you do, all the travel, all the game development is really incredible. It's always fun seeing you, hearing you on podcasts, seeing you on Giant Bomb. So I, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time. So I really appreciate the time, and I'm looking forward to when you fully commit to a new game and announce it. I'm looking forward to what that eventually is and so uh, what type of game it is. Yeah, that's I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, absolutely. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully you tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.